Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in the last third of every Parsha. Vayelech is the shortest Parsha in the Torah, and so we don't divide it into thirds. We just read Vayelech. Um, and because we had a late meeting last night, um, I tried to get a head start on preparing. Um, and so I was reading Wednesday night and like all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, like I started crying reading Vayelech. Now that probably has a lot to do with where I am in my, in my work year right now. Like I am not, I am not pretending it is not relevant, but like, but I was, I don't know. I was really, you know, I've told you I go back and forth with Moshe. Um, but this year, I feel really bad for him. I just feel really bad for him. And um, and just something about reading this Parsha this year was just really, I don't know. It just, I, I, said, I said to Judy, I can't believe I'm reading Deuteronomy and I'm crying. Like, what is going on? Like, that I need to take a minute and, like, figure out what's happening. But I was like, okay. So this year, it was really moving and really troubling. And maybe it's also about the times we're living in and turning on the news and, you know, just, I mean, you heard my Rosh Hashanah sermon, many of you, so there's not, there's not a dearth of things to be concerned about or to cry about. Um, and so like, I'm sure all of that was there and it's a vulnerable time of year, but, but it was interesting to me that I've read this how many times, right? And it was, it was very, it was very moving, um, but, and, and, and troubling, right? It was, it, it was, it was hard to read this year. All right. So having said that, Bert, <laughs> Moses went and spoke these things to all Israel. He said to them, I am now 120 years old. I can no longer be active. Moreover, the Lord has said to me, you shall not go across yonder Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over before you, and he himself will wipe out those nations from your past, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites, and to their countries when he wiped them out. The Lord will deliver them up to you, and you shall deal with them in full accordance with the instruction that I have enjoined upon you. Be strong and resolute. Be not in fear or in dread of them, for the Lord your God himself marches with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. All right. So Moshe goes to the people and speaks to the people and says, I'm 120, right? This is where we bless each other with, may you live to, may I have Esraim to 120. <clears throat> he, we're going to be told later that Moshe's eyes had not dimmed. You know, like he, he was in full, he was fully functional. Um, but Moshe's self-assessment here is that he is 120. He can no longer... Uh, go and come, or is it come and go? I forget. Um, so, let's uh, say I can't go and come anymore. My commentary says that this is about military leadership. That Moshe knows he can no longer be the general, and they're about to engage in a military campaign to take the Promised Land. So, Moshe is saying to them, "I, I, I can't any longer at 120 um, be the one to lead this campaign." Uh, and 
so he says, God is going to fight for you. God will fight with you. Um, he's going to, God will d- deliver up to you all of the people who uh, are in the land now. And um, you will, you will be victorious. And he says to them the same thing he's going to say to Joshua in verse six. Be strong and my translation says resolute, right? Be, be strong and courageous. Um, this, this is the key. If you'll recall with the spies, what happened with the spies? The spies come back. Ten of them have a negative report. Two of them have a positive report. What happened for the people? What the people do? Petrified. They were petrified. And they refused to fight. Again. <laughs> Again. They were petrified again and complained and refused to fight because, you know, oh, my gosh, they're too big. We can't do this. Um, And that was a disaster, you'll recall. That was disastrous for the people. Um, And so so the people's job is be strong and show show, show courage. Like that's really the only thing you got to do because God is going to do the rest. And we talked about this, that in the ancient world, people understood that the God went to war, right, on behalf of the God's people. And so it wasn't really the people, the victory wasn't up to the people, it was up to God. The people's job was to trust that yud heh is the most powerful God, and so will beat up the gods of the Canaanites. Did other peoples believe the same thing about their gods? Yes. So this was common? Common. So, so in other words, when another people conquered you, you took on their religion because their God won. Yeah. So if their God won, their God was stronger. So why wouldn't you worship the winning God? Like, why would you worship your God who got beat up? Right? So, um, so that's Pharaoh, why. Pharaoh was a God. Yeah. Huh? Bandwagoning. Sorry. Okay. So, um, right. So they, so they would worship. So, so that's how so many ancient religions disappeared. Was because once you were conquered, you would take on the worship of the conquering god, and so your religion went away. It disappeared. Right. And so it should have been the same with ancient Israel. That once Yudhei Vavhe was conquered, right? It was you know it should have been that that the worship of Yudhei Vavhe completely went away. But because there was a presence in Babylonia, right, we survived. Well, um, I think modern leaders, uh, uh, political leaders, took on that practice as well. Whenever there is new elections, or you know the people start uh, adopting their you know, their practice or their success, they, they open war at some front. That happens in the Middle East a lot when you look into... Yeah, right? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. So war, right, is one of the ways you, right, say, okay, this, this leader or this god or this political, you know, way of looking at the world or this philosophy, it, it wins, and now it dominates the region. Okay. Seven... Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and resolute, for it is you who shall go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them, and it is you who shall apportion it to them. And the Lord himself will go before you. 
He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not and be not dismayed. All right. So again, we spoke to the people. Then Moshe calls to Yoshua and publicly announces and anoints Yoshua as the successor so that there is absolutely no question about who's supposed to lead them. No question. Um, because in any kind of leadership change, there is a lot of anxiety about who's coming in and, and who is legitimate and who has a right to lead. Um, and, uh, you know, however crazy our elections might be, um, we, have a, we have a peaceful transfer of power Every four years. So far. The jury's out. <laughs> so, um, right, that, that is a remarkable thing if you think about it. How long this country, and I know this country is young, I know that. Like, and when we're talking thousands of years, I get that. But remember, Israel was only 100. We're already double that. Um, <clears throat> so, I know we're a young country, but also. Um, the fact that, that every single election like, is, a, is a peaceful transfer of power is not a small thing, and we often take that for granted. Um, in other places, that is not the case. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of um, people who have been in power scrambling and being afraid, what's going to happen if I lose power? I could lose my head, literally, um, right? I could be killed. So, um, so it's a very anxious time, particularly in the ancient world. Uh, you have people like, you know, who take over and then they're murdered, right? They're assassinated. You know, they're I mean, all over the place. So this, this is a big moment. Moshe has been the founding leader of this people. He's not just their current leader. He's the founding leader. He took them out of Egypt. He's the one who talks to God. And he's now going to tell them, I'm retiring from leadership. He has to do this publicly. He has no choice. So he brings Yoshua, and it's, it says here in the text, before the eyes of all Israel. Like, so everybody's there. This is not just a private meeting in his tent with the leadership. All of Israel is going to witness this moment where Moshe transfers authority to Yoshua. And he says to, to Yeshua the same thing he has said to the people, chazak um, be strong and courageous because you will go with this people to the land that Adonai swore to their fathers to give them and it is you who will apportion it to them. God will go with you. So again, we're going to get these words about lotirah, don't be afraid. So what we know about Yeshua is that he has been... Um, the faithful protege of Moshe. We really don't hear much about Yoshua. We, we hear in the incident with the scouts that he has the courage and the strength to stand up to the opinion of the other ten and to face the people and say, don't, don't listen to them. That's one perspective, but there's another perspective, right? So he was strong enough to be Independent in that episode. Is, is Moses anointing Joshua as his successor, or is he saying, you're the guy that can lead us in, but you're not necessarily 
the future leader of the people. I mean, how do you read this? So he's he's definitely making him the general. General. Right. So he's he's a, appointing him to be the military leader of this campaign that they're about to embark on. Um, and at this time, this that made Joshua de facto the leader of the people. Right, so that that remember early before there was a monarchy in Israel, there was the judges, and the judges were somebody who were call, who was called to leadership because remember it was a loose confederation of tribes that kind of just came together when there was an emergency. Uh, otherwise, they were independent, and so um, when there was an emergency, they meaning the Philistines are getting ready to attack or whatever, they would come together and and choose a judge who would be the military leader and by default was also then the leader who, who made the decisions for the people. And that, that's Joshua's role here. Is he a relative? Hmm? Is he a relative? He is, he is not a relative, which is interesting, right? So we have Aaron, whose sons will be high priest after him, right? Only Aaron's sons can be Kohanim, can be priests. They're Levites, right? All, all Kohanim are Levites, not all Levites are Kohanim. So they can be, they're all Levites, but only Aaron's sons can be, um, can be priests. And there's discussion about, so how come, Moshe has two sons, right? So how come Moshe's children, right, aren't even discussed as possible it's leaders? It's revolutionary that... It seems that Torah is saying the kind of leadership that a Kohen is can be taught. You can teach your sons from a young age. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. You use this much spice in the incense. You shecht an animal this way. This is how you dash the blood. Like you can, you can teach what the priests do. You cannot teach what Moses does. What Moshe does, the kind of leader, the charismatic leader that Moshe is, requires something else. And, and his sons are not even ever discussed as possible leaders. So it's revolutionary in that it, it's not about, okay, I'm, I'm the boss, I'm in control, and so I decide <coughs> who comes after me. And of course, you want that to be your family. You want them to have those perks. Uh, but but I don't know I don't know that Moshe sees it as such a perk to lead the Israelite people um, to lead the Jews. But um, it's also a distinction that Mozart's not the monarch, right? And that God is. Right. So it has nothing to do with the Mozart. Mozart being you know, misperceived somehow as having a royal type of. So right. So Moshe is God's partner, and it is it is God who decides who the leader is going to be. Um, and and there's there's even a, a term that it, it is God it is you know that that God the spirit of God is on that person um, and so it's clear that Yoshua who's been Moshe's protege right is is the one that um, who has the qualities that the people I was going to say who has the, the kind of leadership qualities that Moshe has but but that's really not the point right the point is. Yoshua has the qualities that the people need now, which may be similar to what Moshe has, but, but also something different. Moshe saying, I can't lead you now, right? It's Yoshua who has to lead you now. They need something else. Um, but, but it's that quality of leadership that, um, that Yoshua has that, uh, that's, that's different than something you inherit.
at this the motion, point. The motion signed, they weren't there in the desert for 40 years. No, they, they were here. They were? Yeah. Tipora brings them. And she never leaves them. She stays in place. At which point does, at this point, does Moses know he's not also not going to be going into the problem? Yeah. I guess I can't Yeah, so Mo- Moshe says in uh, verse 2, um, right? I'm now 120 years old. I can no longer be active. Moreover, God has said to me, you will not cross over the Jordan. So he tells the people that God has... No, it's okay. He tells the people that God told him he's not crossing over the Jordan. God tells him way, way before this in the Torah. Right. Right. The rock. All right. Nine. Moses wrote down this teaching and gave it to the priests, sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses instructed them as follows. Every seventh year, the year set for remission at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose, you shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. Gather the people, men, women, children, and the strangers in your communities, that they may hear and so learn to revere the Lord your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Their children, too, who have not had the experience, shall hear and learn to revere the Lord your God as long as they live in the land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So Moshe says to them, every seven years at Sukkot, you're to read this teaching out loud. In front of all the people. It's in the singular. You, singular, shall read this teaching to the people. So, right, a big question of the commentators is, who's, who's intended here? Right? Like, who's Moshe talking to? Mm-mm. Head of every household. Moshe writes down the teaching and gives it to the priests, the sons of Levi, and the elders of Israel, and then says, every seven years, you singular shall read this to the people on Sukkot. So, one of them. <laughs> presumably one of them. And read the whole Torah. Well, it says uh, HaTorah. HaTorah Hazot generally means Deuteronomy. Okay. <laughs> read Deuteronomy. Read Deuteronomy. We do, right? Well, it's a, it's we read men, Deuteronomy. It says men and women yeah. and children and strangers, not just men. Correct. This, this sounds a lot like the Via Haftah. You shall do this, and that's also individually saved. Yes, but that means everybody. This is a... This is somebody's got to read. Who's going to... Right, so either a priest, an elder, possibly the king... Right, but it, the people are to be. Remember, this is found <laughs> under King Josiah, right? So this is written under Josiah that every seven years you will read this reconstruction of the tradition. It's more important than who shall read it is that everybody should hear it. So clearly, right? It's to remind the people, all of the people. 
that they are to live in line with this teaching. Um, there are children, too, who have not had the experience, right? They haven't heard this, little ones. If, if they're under the age of seven, they've never heard this, right? That they shall hear and learn to right, revere Adonai, your God, as long as they live in the land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. What is the relationship between the seven years here and the seven years um, uh, associated with the Yovel? So it seems that they, they tie them together in that when it's time for letting servant slaves go, indentured servants go, that's when you're going to now read the teaching. So you, you tell me what that connection is. Um, the reading basically... Uh, is implicit uh, for letting the slaves go and doing the other things that happen every seven years. And, and, right, and, and, and is an example of following my laws, living justly as a society, is that you don't get to keep a human being right past a certain amount of time. Um, so that, that whole idea is tied up with you will live according to my Commandments and will will be in awe and revere Adonai your God. And one of the ways you prove that is you're going to let your indentured servants go. So these are Israelites. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. So they are being freed. Because they are indentured servants, they are Hebrews. Anyone you capture in war, you keep forever. It's indentured servants that are Hebrews who are serving because they were poor. That the the playing field gets leveled. You know, you start over again um, every seven years. Right, land reverts to. Who owned it and indentured servants go free and um, so all that stuff happens every seven years only for Hebrew indentured servants so presumably they go back to their family so there is a provision for if they want to stay in the master's mm-hmm. home they, they put a all through the ear they hammer a <laughs> You know, they pierce, the they pierce their ear <laughs> oh, okay. on a post, right? So, um, and then that that now means that they are they they can stay with their master. Like, let's say they married and had children as an indentured servant. The wife and children aren't leaving. If you want to stay with your wife and children, then you have a hole put through your ear. So, part and so, of course, the rabbis ask. What's that about? Yeah. <laughs> like you know, like what, yeah. why is why is putting a hole in your ear the the symbol? And the rabbis say because it's not supposed to be that the ear that heard Torah on Sinai about being freed from Egypt and your obligations as a free person that ear that heard that at Sinai is not supposed to want to stay a slave. And so the ear is pierced. Every child in the Middle East, especially in the lower parts of the Middle East. Really? Boys and girls, they all get a pierce. It's meant right to stay empty. And it's meant to stay empty. And what is the symbolism of that? 
To ward off evil. To ward off evil. That's what, what's being said, but maybe there's an ancient tradition. So somehow putting putting an imperfection in the ear maybe wards off. Through it too, so Very interesting. Where did you say that is? In Yemen, Oman. The lower, parts of the, the lower parts of the Middle East, he said, they all all babies get a, Yemen, or all children get a. Yemen was very Jewish. Yes, yeah. right. Very, very I was just noticing in one of the commentaries about the, um, we're talking about the, Moses writing it down, as opposed to just telling it or remembering it, and that always strikes me that similarities between you know our Constitution and the Torah. There's con- you know it's always going back to what did it mean, and here it says that um, later references to the teaching of Moses written down appear in times of instability or crisis, including a transition in rule or a moment of political or religious reform. And, you know, it just strikes me so much that we always have this something, this basic, when things start getting a little bit crazy or strange, well, let's go back and see what it did say. You know, what, what was, what's the foundation? And, you know, maybe as a lawyer, it's like, well, what, what, did the, what did the document say? And it's, you know, here we are now in a time where we're like, well, what does the Constitution actually say? Well, we're always looking at reference you know, points. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, the same thing, it's the same thing we were doing then, you know, when whoever was in Moses at the time. Let's, re- let's remind ourselves that we have this teaching from Moses. However, the Jewish tradition, and American as well, isn't just fundamentalist in the sense that it only goes back to the original. It goes to all of the commentary and case law. Well, so what I was going to say is, okay, you can go back to the original, but what does it mean? Like, what what does it mean when you say, right? Right. And so that... There are certain foundational rules of the game, and that that we are also taught over, like, you go to school. We have a constitution, folks. Every four years is a transition of power. Oh, well, we're just born into the rules of the game. But we opt in, and we do it by our choice. And we, you know, we're raised and, and we're inculcated into this, you know, a system. It's just a very similar process. And, there, and there's lots written. I, I have an article. Anyone wants to read it? It's like this thick. Um, I have an article on, on how Deuteronomy is the basis of the Constitution. Yeah. You know, that, that this idea that there is a set of rules and laws and, and collections of that and other things that are not exactly that, but sort of that, right? And founding principles and that, um, that, that this is really what our forefathers, and it was forefathers, um, looked to, to, you know, to figure out what, what did they want to base this country on. And, and, and that always makes it very relatable to me mm-hmm. because I'm not a strict constructionist of, of the Constitution. I don't think that we should, you know, that there should be three-fifths of a person. Obviously, we evolve, we change, and it, it just is a, such an accessible way to enter this text as an American who's raised in, you know, in civics lessons. Like, oh, okay, that's what it means to say you can go back to the text, but it's not to be taken literally, and it evolves for its time. And, and there are crises involved in that, right? Like we are facing one now, that, we are, that there's a crisis around what, what does that mean? If you go to the Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors, what does that mean exactly? High crimes, does that mean it's a big high crime? Or does it mean it's a crime that takes place at a high <laughs> office? Right? And that's going to be a huge argument in this country that's going to determine right a lot of stuff and um 
And that's exactly how Torah has always functioned, is you know, to be <laughs> argued about. <laughs> but yes, so it's and it's, so it's very familiar to us this idea of coming back to the text to say, okay, we're going to read it again and figure out for us what it means and how we live by this or or don't, right? All right, so let's go to, where are we? 14. Thank you. The Lord said to Moses, the time is drawing near for you to die. Is that what you cried? I did. I did. It's so simple and so sad. It's so sad. But it's just a simple statement. (laughs) Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may instruct him. Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, the pillar of cloud having come to rest at the entrance of the tent. The Lord said to Moses, You are soon to live with your fathers. Lie. Lie. You are soon to lie with your fathers. This people will thereupon go astray after the alien gods in their midst in the land that they are about to enter. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I made with them. Then my anger will flare up against them, and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. They shall be ready prey, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. And they shall say on that day, Surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Yet I will keep my countenance hidden that day because of all the evil they have done in turning to other gods. Therefore... Write down this poem and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths in order that this poem may be my witness against the people of Israel. When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey that I promised on oath to their fathers, and they eat their fill and grow fat and turn to other gods and serve them, spurning me and breaking my covenant, and the many evils and troubles befall them, then this poem shall confront them as a witness, since it will never be lost from the mouth of their offspring." For I know what plans they are devising even now before I bring them into the land that I promised on oath. I I, I just can't even this year. I just can't even. I just can't. Like, it's it's so sad. It's like, okay, Moses is going to die. That's sad enough. Like, he's being told you're about to die. He's 120. Okay, maybe it's not so sad, right, for him at 120. Maybe he's tired. I get that. I've seen people who are ready to die. I understand that, and I hope to God that's my case, is that I'm ready to go when it's time. So I'm not saying that's the only sad thing. He's about to die, and look what God tells him. They're about to enter the land. He's worked his whole career for this moment. And God tells him, you're about to die. And the people that you've raised, that you have schlepped through the midbar, are going to cross over into the land and they're going to succeed. They're going to get fat off the land and then they will betray me. They'll betray the whole enterprise. And then I'm going to have to hide my face and catastrophe is going to befall this people. They are going to go whoring, fornicating, with other gods. And I'm going to have to punish them. I have to I have no choice. 
This is where I feel like God is an irresponsible co-parent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, Moshe's dying. And you, God, feel like you need to tell Moshe what's going to happen to the kids? Like, I know what they're plotting even now. They're going to go to college. They're going to get a degree. They're going to get a great apartment in a great neighborhood. They're going to drive a fancy car and go on fancy vacations, and they will betray me. And then I'm going to have to ruin them. They're going to be home. I'm going to, I will take them out. If this was written in retrospect, right, this is kind of planting the seed for the theme that we're going to see over and over again that God knew what was going to happen. I mean, later, God is going to say, I will take you back. It's written in the book of Nome, right? That's written in the book of It's post-exilic. I think there's a lesson here. <laughs> Sarah, tell us what you think the lesson here is, please. The lesson is, in no generation are you ever finished. And work remains accomplished. So don't think you've got it all made. Mm. But each generation has to work it out. Maybe add to that. And don't feel so sad or disappointed when that's what happens. Because if it happened to Moses, it, you know, it's going to happen to you too. So when you know, I don't feel so bad that you're going to be crushed and exiled and your children will be murdered okay how can you not feel it's all good right it's like this horrible horrible thing that god shares with moshe i think that's what upset me so much on wednesday night like it that moshe's come to the end and god is saying they're gonna blow it they're gonna get in there they're gonna take it all for granted and they're gonna blow it and i'm gonna have to schmice them right for it, and it's I, I felt bad. I felt bad for Moshe. This is this is how he ends his life. So we have to get to where Bert was talking about. Girls, I just can't stand it. Same story, Amy in Christianity, but it's Jesus saying they will betray me. It's the same story. It's a repetition of the initial story we're hearing here. Right. Absolutely. Because because nothing changes in that sense right we, we remain flawed one more cycle and you know Jesus will be betrayed and then Jesus will sacrifice right Jesus self or God sacrifices Jesus self whatever um, yeah. in order to redeem right the people in Christianity from from their own sinful nature alright that day Moses wrote down this poem and taught it to the Israelites And he charged Joshua, son of Nun, Be strong and resolute, for you shall bring the Israelites into the land that I promised them on oath, and I will be with you. When Moses had put down in writing the words of this teaching to the very end, Moses charged the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of teaching and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and let it remain there as a witness against you. Well, I know how defiant and stiff-necked you are. Even now, while I'm still alive in your midst, you have been defiant toward the Lord. How much more than when I am dead? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officials, 
that I may speak all these words to them, and that I may call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that when I am dead, you will act wickedly and turn away from the path that I enjoined upon you, and that in time to come, misfortune will before you for having done evil in the sight of the Lord and vexed him by your deeds. Then Moses recited the words of this poem to the very end in the hearing of the whole congregation of Israel after this commercial break. And guess what, Bert? In today's Torah study, we don't get to the part you were talking about. Right? So, um, so to your point earlier, Laura, some, some people want to say that it's the poem that is the teaching and that it's the poem that's to be written down and to be read and to be placed in the ark. And the poem, of course, is Ha'azinu that we read next week, uh, which starts at 32.1. So we are left at the end of 31 with Moshe saying, you've been a problem while I'm alive. I can imagine, yeah. Just just imagine when I'm gone how bad y'all are going to be, right? You're going to mess this up so badly, right? So, and so I feel like poor Moshe like, just got told by God and what? Moshe's, Moshe's going to question what God knows, right? That, that, so Moshe just got told this by God. And so now Moshe, what's Moshe going to do? So Moshe turns to the people and traumatizes the people saying, right? Um, y'all are going to mess this whole thing up. Yes. The reason Bert seems to be able to live with this is because it is written in retrospect, right, by a people who is suffering, right? This is written by the children who are asking, why did you forsake us? How, how could you forsake us? Your fault. Right, right? And the, the way that they answer that, the way they live with that is it was our fault. We, we brought it on ourselves. Um, because otherwise, how do you live with the parent that left you? H- how do you live with a parent who allowed right, another people to come in and blow up your country? H- how do you live with that, that parent? If they love you, how could they let that happen? So these are the traumatized children writing. The only way they can stay in relationship to that parent is, it was my fault. Right? And I see, frankly, I see this a lot. People who want to still love and respect their parents often will say, but you know, I was a really rotten kid. I was, right? Am I right? I was a lot of trouble to be fair. You know, my father didn't have a loving father. And I was a real pain in the tush and blah, blah, blah. I deserved a lot of what I got. Because it's the only way to, to live in relationship to a parent who didn't take care of you, who didn't defend you, who hurt you, who allowed you to be hurt. Well, how come mom didn't do anything? Well, she could never stand up to him. That's, you know, I... She was completely powerless. It wasn't her fault. He would have hit her. But it's like, that's crazy, right? But it's how you stay in relationship to a loving... It's the only way you can believe that you are loved by that parent and stay in relationship is if you then take on responsibility for the ways that you were hurt and damaged by that parent. These are the traumatized children. I don't know when you intended to use this poem, but it seems to fit right here. Mm-hmm. 
May I read it? Please. I used to mumble many words in the prayer book without much thought, even all wise, all good, all powerful God, until dear Clara was felled by a stroke. She who always did for others, now helpless, shorn of dignity. The contradiction of those words struck me then, forced me to shake my head over and over again, but say no, and say nothing or not for me. I need to say yes, yes to a soap bubble afloat in sunshine, to a newborn baby's perfect fingernails, to a child reading a first sentence, to the look of love that lights a face. I do not ask who or how, just say yes. Mm-hmm. That is such a beautiful poem. Right? So. After we go through all the turmoil and fail again and again and lose again and again, we still just say yes. And that's, that's the task, right? That's the challenge. That's the obligation. That's the mitzvah. That's the work is how do we say yes? Anyway, how do we say yes in the face of all of the things that will befall all of us? How do we say yes? And how do we look for the things to say yes to? Because who's going to say no to a baby's perfect fingernails? Come on. <laughs> right? But it's... You have to notice <laughs> but, but you have... So it's... Who's going to say no to that? Somebody who doesn't see it. Right. And so it's about how... It's about looking for the things to which we can answer yes. Looking for yes. Right? Psychologists will tell you that you see the things that you're looking for. Right? So there's a great TED Talk by Amy Cross Rosenthal who um, spoke about if you're looking out in the sea, the audience, if she was looking for people wearing yellow, suddenly she saw so much yellow. She was looking just for red. That's what she'd see. So you have to be on the lookout. For things. for things that are good or bad, because whatever it is that you're looking for will stand out more. Uh, and, you, and the same is true of, of right evidence, mm-hmm. right? That if they tell us we, we look for evidence to support the convictions we already have, right? And we, are, and we dismiss evidence that does not support what we already believe to be true. And, um, and now that we have algorithms that watch everything we read, those algorithms choose the article we see next listed in Google on that topic based on our previous history. So now we're being fed articles and and perspectives that match what we already read. They even say, because of your previous choices, you might enjoy... And when it's shopping, I'm totally down with that, <laughs> right? Like, they know what kind of shoes I like. Uh, that's a great thing. I love that. But when it comes to ideas, <laughs> yeah. right, when it comes to perspectives, it is just downright dangerous that we are, we are living in an echo chamber now where we only are exposed really. I search on Google for the same term you search for, and we get different listings, based on our previous reading history. That is terrifying yes. that, we, that we now you know, are not exposed to 
Um, well, it's not terrifying for me, but for other people. Right, so, right, them. It's, it's terrifying to me that they are not exposed, right, to what we think and what we know to be true. They are, you know, only watching fill in the blank what network. The, the theme here, though, I mean, I was going back to last week, which had, cur- had blessings and curses, and then you're going to stray, and then in the end it said God will take you back. And here we are again talking about straying, and later the possibility of what you need to do not to stray and to come back is so apt for this time of the year, Shabbat Shuvah, in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And it, it's both sides of a coin, and I find that about our tradition so wonderful. It recognizes that sometimes we do miss the mark, and it's not eternal. We have the ability to return, and the idea that God will, whatever, however you understand that to be, that it is possible to return. So look at page three. Page three. Once we enter the promised land, we are destined to stray from God and the covenant. God will punish us by banishing us to other lands and by turning God's face away from us. But eventually, we will return to heart centered awareness, recognizing that we have become estranged from our intention and we will return. Vishavta. God will respond by turning back towards us, restoring us to the land and taking us back in love. In this cycle, there are at least two opportunities where we can make a choice. From the outset, we could decide not to stray in the first place. This is pretty obvious. But what makes the tradition so human and responsive is that it recognizes that we will stray. We are not perfect And there will always be times as individuals and as a community when we will feel alienated or distant from alignment with the divine. There will be times when the mind is clouded and the heart is constricted, and we may not always be able to see clearly enough to make a wise choice in those moments. However, there is enough compassion that even when we do stray, there is always a second chance to make a different choice. From within the experience of suffering, judgment, and exile, right where this is written, we can still choose to say yes to life. We can feel the constriction and know it, taking it to heart. And then we can choose to remember our original wholesome intentions and values and turn towards the possibility that we are still loved. For me, this is what is most critical at this time of year, to Bert's point. We read this on Shabbat Shuvah. The challenge is, can we believe that we are still loved? Because without that, there's no energy or hope for Shuvah, for changing. It's when we get stuck in, I have been distanced, there is no possibility, you know, that I am enough, that I have the, the, that I am enough and that I can change that I am loved already, if we, if we can't start there, there's not a lot of energy for real transformation. And um, I was, we were learning with uh, Donielle Hartman, who was here in L.A. and talking to a bunch of us rabbis and, uh, recently. 
And he said, you know, it's this odd thing that we start the year and then 10 days later we have Yom Kippur. You know my theory about it. I've explained mm-hmm. it to you <laughs> that Yom Kippur came before Sukkot, um, that Yom Kippur is actually tied to Sukkot. But anyway, so we, what we have is, because we don't, Sukkot is not the focus. What we have is we start the new year, we have this big holiday, and then 10 days later we do tshuva. Like, that's so bizarre. Should it be the other way around? And so he said that he has come to learn that, and and it sounded kind of (laughs) recent, that his insight recently is you have to first get in touch with who you want to be. And until you get in touch with who you want to be, you can't change. That, that, that the new year is about really getting in touch with it's a new year, it's a new start. Who do I want to be? And then you have 10 days and then you go to Yom Kippur and it's like, okay, what do I have to change in order to be that Amy? What, what needs to change? But, it, but you have to first know who you want to be or you can't put in motion all of the things that have to happen to become that person. And so that's starting to make sense to him in a different way. Um, and, I, and I think, and, and this is related to that for me, that, that I have to believe I'm lovable, changeable, in order to have the commitment to change, right? If it's, if it's just like, if it's a done deal, if it's like, you know, over, then why bother? And I think that, for me, is often the challenge, right? That, to start there, that I'm changeable and deserving of forgiveness and love, and that it's possible, truly possible, to be loved into change. Isn't that tremendously hard for <laughs> the authors who were in Babylonia at the time to take that to heart? I, I think so. I think it was hugely courageous, right? Yes. I think, and I think we don't talk enough about that. I think you're 100% right. It's very insightful that our tradition, this whole business, is given to us by a people who felt like they had behaved in a way that earned them exile. <laughs> right? And yet, here... Here we have it. I will take you back in love. Right? Uh, there, there could have been a very different response. Fine. We will be worshiping the gods of Babylonia. Thank you very much. Right? Like, we're done with you, Yahweh. Like, where were you? Right? Right? Forget this Yudhe business. That didn't work out so well for us. But they didn't. I'm trying to put myself into their minds. And, and if I were, if I did back in those times, I would probably hate myself. I would be a self-hate because of what happens. Because, because of where we are now. And am I ready to love myself again? Am I ready to change and love myself again? So that is the challenge. That remains, I think, the challenge. Can, just as hard now. Can, can we love ourselves? Right? Can we... Can we love? I mean, I look around, and maybe this is the other reason I was so upset on Wednesday. You know, it was like, oh my God, Moshe's being told they're going to mess it all up. And you, you turn on the television and you go, for real? Yeah. This is what it's come to? For real? For real? 
This country, all the people who died to give us our freedom, all the people who died to defend our freedom, all the people who have sacrificed everything to come here and start a new life, to give us the opportunity to be in this country, the greatest country in the history of the world, really? This is what it's come to? <laughs> right? It's like, can we love ourselves? Can we love ourselves as a people? Can we love ourselves as a country? Can we be patriotic enough to believe that we can address this mess, right? That we can live into the ideals of our ancestors, that, right? I think that it is the core question that provides all of the energy for change. And that's, I, I'm understanding more and more right now, that's, that's my work, is to stay in love, right? To stay in hope and true belief that it's possible to change it. That, that's where I have to stay, or, right, it's all... Give up. Right, we can't give up. Our choice to return to God is met with God wholeheartedly receiving us back and opening our hearts further. I don't think it is accidental that this passage from Deuteronomy 30 contains eight repetitions of the verb lashuv, to return. The number eight is more than the number seven, which often signifies completion. Here we have even more than a sense of completion. We have an overflow of grace and compassion pouring out in our direction as soon as our hearts turn. This practice of returning again and again to our intention and our deeply held values, no matter how far we or our society has strayed, is so important in social justice work. Confronted with suffering that does not seem deserved, operating in a world where confusion, constriction, and hatred dominate, we can still choose life and work to make the world better. It is really a practice of saying yes, as in our opening poem. So our intention for this Shabbat Shuvah is can we look for the yes this year? Can we look for, look to, and affirm Yes, this year. Shana Tova. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.